Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in God's Word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go before his throne of grace to ask his guidance and direction this morning. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in the writings of the prophets and the apostles as you breathed out your word through them, through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, who uh, superintended their writings in such a way that he protected them from error and guaranteed that they recorded exactly what you intended to uh, communicate to us and that you communicated to us in such a way that we could understand these things, and you have created us knowing that you would communicate to us in such a way as to be able to understand your word. Sin distorts that, but it is in your grace through God the Holy Spirit that we are enabled to understand the truth of your word. Now, Father, as we continue our study in First Kings this morning, we pray that you would challenge us, that as we reflect upon the problems of arrogance, self-deception, self-justification, that you would help us to see areas in our own life where we are uh, so prone to this that we might not simply be blind in our own arrogance to our own flaws and failures, but that God God the Holy Spirit would use this to expose to us areas where we need to apply the word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in the last lesson that we looked at, in 1 Kings chapter 22, the first part of the chapter going down to uh, verse 40, we looked at one of the most unusual, most bizarre uh, events in the Old Testament. As Ahab and Jehoshaphat, Ahab the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, has allied himself or convinced Jehoshaphat to ally himself with him, with Ahab. And they're going to try to take back this territory around Ramoth Gilead, which is over in the areas I pointed out last time, near the, in the same general area as the Golan Heights, the area over across the Jordan where there's still so much conflict today, and try to win back this territory for the northern kingdom. As they set out, Jehoshaphat, because Jehoshaphat is a godly king, he is oriented to God's grace, he is positive to the word, and he wants some divine guidance. 
And so this is the last thing Ahab really wants. He wants to do what he wants to do. And he is operating in arrogance, and as such, he's operating under self-deception, thinking that he actually has control of his life and the affairs of his life, and that he doesn't really need God. And so he's taken aback somewhat by Jehoshaphat's request to get a prophet, and so he calls together the remaining uh, prophets that he has in the northern kingdom. Most uh, All of these are false prophets. They're just going to uh, tell Ahab whatever he wants to hear. And so Ahab enters into this to be willingly, uh, willingly deceived. And in that process, the curtain opens up on what goes on in heaven as Micaiah the true prophet comes forward and he gives he talks about two visions that God has given him one is a vision of of the uh, armies of Israel being scattered like sheep without a shepherd indicating of course that Ahab would die in the battle and the second vision opened up the curtain into the throne room of God what goes on behind the scenes in terms of God's uh, interaction with the angels, both the holy angels and the fallen angels, and how that relates to the angelic conflict or this this warfare that has existed in the heavenlies from the time of Satan's rebellion against God. And so the warfare that is going on on the earth is directly related to the warfare that is going on, on in heaven. And in that vision... Uh, Micaiah says that he saw God calling for uh, a spirit who would go forth and deceive the prophets. And so it's, we're told in verse 21, a spirit came forward, said, I will deceive Ahab. And the Lord says, in what way? And he says, I'll be a lying spirit in his mouth. And so uh, this has created a problem for a lot of people. How do you really understand this? I mean, isn't God supposed to be a God of truth, a God of righteousness? And yet we have God sending forth this uh, deceiving spirit. So how are we to under, understand that? And we touched on this, one aspect of this, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, probably about four lessons back, and it relates to the doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. You see, we often think that because we spend a lot of time studying the Bible, because we can think in terms of various uh, sophisticated theological terminology, and that we have read the Bible several times, we've been uh, in a teaching church for many years, that somehow we have a pretty good handle on God, and that somehow in that we somehow get deceived into thinking that we have control of God. We know what he's like and what he is going to do, and we think that we actually uh, have a more of a comprehensive understanding of God than we do. Scripture says that we can know God. We can know God truly. We can know true things about God, but we certainly don't have a comprehensive or exhaustible knowledge of God. We can know him through the Bible as he has revealed himself to us. And in the scriptures, we see that he is the God of truth and the God of righteousness, that he is a, a good God. 
But he is not a God that who is at our beck and call. He's not a God that is going to necessarily perform as we think he's going to perform. And we're going to run into circumstances and situations in life that somehow take us by surprise, and, and it doesn't fit into that little box, that little formula we've sort of constructed in our mind to try to uh, get some kind of handle or control on God. Uh, several weeks ago when we were looking at the event in uh, chapter 19 when Elijah uh, went down to the area around uh, Mount Horeb and God uh, gave him a theophany where he had the lightnings and the thunderings and the whirlwind and the earthquakes and all of these things and then uh, spoke to him in a, in a um, uh, quiet in the silence there is really what it is. It's a full silence. I talked about the fact that God was beyond our control. He is incomprehensible. And I played a clip from the last part of the film on the book, on C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's that end scene where Lucy has discovered that Aslan has left. Aslan is the lion who represents God in the in the symbolism of the film, and that Aslan is left, he's going away, and this doesn't fit her conception. She thinks that Aslan should have stayed, and so she runs to the balcony only to see that he is leaving. And I want to replay that clip for you now. see him again. When? In time. One day he'll be here and the next he won't. But you mustn't press him. After all, he's not a tame lion. No. But he is good. That's just such a great conception of God. He's not a tame lion. We can't control him. God in the scriptures acts and performs in ways that do not fit the preconceived notions that we pick up from a lot of misunderstanding of scripture and a lot of preconceived notions that really have their roots in paganism. God is not a tame God. He's not going to do what you expect him to do when you think you have a handle on your life and what's going on. God is often going to uh, surprise you. He will do the unexpected, the unpredictable. We cannot bend him and mold him to perform our will. He is the God who rules in heaven and on earth. He is the general at the head of the spiritual armies involved in a uh, conflict, the conflict of the ages, with this creature, Lucifer, who is attempting to usurp his throne. And it is God who is working out his plan and his purposes through human history in order to bring that uh, cosmic conflict to its resolution. Now, last time when we looked at that event, I focused on the fa- more of the the, the deceptive theme. That's really the theme in that chapter. The key event is this deception 
that is going on, and the focal point is on this event in heaven, this vision where God sends out a spirit of deception to the prophets. But often people look at that and they go, oh, how does this fit with God? Uh, this this con- contradicts the New Testament where we have passages like Hebrews 6, 18 that states that it is impossible uh, for God to lie. James 1.17 says that in him there is no shadow or turning or shifting. Uh, Psalm 31.5 says God is the God of truth. And, and Psalm 33.4 says that all his work is in truth. In the New Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth in John 14, 17, John 15, 26, John 16, 23, and he will guide us in all truth. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, in John chapter 14, verse 6, and that God's word is truth in John 17, 17. So how do we understand this work of deception where God sends a deceiver to deceive Ahab. And I want you to remember this because last time I pointed out that ultimately there is no deception in by God in chapter 22 because Ahab is already self-deceived. God sends this deceiving spirit to Ahab in order to lure him to his death in the battle, but even after he does that, God sends his prophet Micaiah to tell Ahab that he is being deceived. God baits the trap for Ahab, but then he shows him the trap before he even springs it. Nevertheless, Ahab, it's not any different from you or I, in self-deception goes into the battle and he attempts to deceive the enemy by dressing as just a common soldier so that he can somehow cheat God and avoid the death that God has told him would take place. So in self-deception, Ahab thinks he can control God, that God is somehow like these other gods that he has worshipped, that he can control, and that he has uh, he can run his life his own way in pure autonomy. That's what I pointed out last time is that the key elements in the cosmic system, on the one hand, autonomy, our assertion of our independence from God, and secondly, antagonism toward God, uh, hatred or opposition to everything that God stands for. So Ahab, in self-deception, is asserting his autonomy, and he is really hostile uh, to God. But you see, God is not this figment of human imagination that is so often presented by our by our modern worldview. He's not some uh, wimpy little grandfatherly old man who can be hoodwinked. And he's not this impersonal force that is uh, seen in Eastern religions that can somehow be manipulated if we just do the right thing. That if we do certain things following some formula, then God in turn will do certain other uh, things. What we see in the scripture is God is the commanding general of an army. He is engaged in this cosmic warfare. Think in terms of something like World War II except exponentially increased. Uh, And God is in charge of that army that involves both the 
uh, holy angels in heaven as well as believers on earth. And God is going to win the conflict, and he is going to use every stratagem at his um, available to him to defeat the enemy. We think back to how God conducted warfare in Joshua. The book of Joshua tells how God, as the commander of the armies, the Lord of hosts, uh, hosts is an archaic English word for armies. Uh, the Hebrew there, Yahweh Sabaoth, indicate he is the Lord of the armies, and he led them, he directed uh, Joshua to attack Jericho, later to attack Ai, and various other attacks. And as part of those attacks, God used deception in order to confuse and to rout the enemy. At Ai, he sends, he had the uh, uh, Joshua hold back the major force of the army uh, around uh, up a valley and out of sight from Ai and sent in about 7,000 troops to attack the city and then to fall back and retreat and to uh, run away. This lured the troops, uh, the army out of Ai. They chased them uh, down the valley only to fall into the ambush of the the rest of the uh, uh, Israelite army, the, the vast uh, uh, number of their troops. So God used deception again and again in his military tactics to win. And in 1 Kings 22, God is using deception to defeat the enemy. But he, all, but he does it in a way that he uses their own self-deception against them, just like a, uh, someone in judo uses the energy, the force of his uh, opponent to redirect it against him. And that is what God is doing in 1 Kings chapter 22. As we read earlier in Psalm 18.25, God does not always behave in the way that our naive, oversimplified theology expects. In Psalm 18.25 we read, With the merciful you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious or with the cunning, you will show yourself shrewd or cunning. That word there indicates that God is is crafty. He is one who will come along and uh, use uh, uh, cunning, use various stratagems in order to uh, outsmart and to defeat Uh, the enemy. He is very clever and crafty in the way that he is going to um, deal with the enemy and outsmart the enemy. So in Psalm 18, God is depicted, I mean, yeah, is depicted as the one who uses cunning and deception to entrap and ensnare the haughty enemy, for that is how the enemy is portrayed when you get down to verse uh, 27. For you will save the humble people, but you will bring down haughty looks. And so what we see in this section of First Kings and the beginning of Second Kings is how God, in a extremely cunning, sophisticated manner, uses the arrogance and the self-deception of Ahab and his son Ahaziah against them in order to defeat them and in order to continue to be victorious in this cosmic spiritual 
uh, conflict. So what we see in the Scripture is that God is depicted as this general of all generals. He is out to win, and he's out to win big. He uses the same kinds of traps his enemy uses. He uses uh, deceptive tactics and strategies, and he wins, and he wins big, and he will win in the end. As a result, we see God depicted as this kind of leader that is not this lovable, soft, teddy bearish, grandfatherly image we often uh, construct of God, but God is a strong, powerful, victorious leader. I remember when I was uh, in ROTC in college, and we would uh, we had a uh, commanding officer we all uh, thought very highly of and respected, and we would there was a saying that that if we would charge the gates of hell with him, we'll see God is the general we will charge the gates of hell with. That's the picture that we see here in the Scripture. It's a very different view of God than the sort of effeminate view that is often portrayed and that comes across in many branches of Christianity, artwork, and other aspects, uh, and, and especially from the, uh, from the pagan worldview. God is a God that we can follow. God is a God that we can trust. God is a God who's going to win and protect us, and therefore he is a God that we can be uh, loyal to, give him all of our loyalty, and we can adore him. So we need to learn from the lesson from these chapters that we should not be aligned with those who oppose God in arrogance because it is, as the writer of Hebrews says in our study, on Thursday nights in Hebrews 10:31 it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is why the scriptures emphasize the fear of the Lord as the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1:7 says that but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So are you on the side of those who fear the Lord who want to know Bible doctrine, want to have knowledge and wisdom of the truth? Or are you on the side of the fools who despise wisdom and knowledge, who can't find time in your schedule to study the Word, to grow and mature spiritually, and to let the human viewpoint paganism of thought forms dominate your your soul? You don't have time to let those be replaced by, uh, let the human viewpoint be replaced by divine uh, viewpoint. And in 1 Peter 5, 6, we're told that God uh, gives grace to the humble, but that he sets himself against the arrogant. And it's an interesting word that's used there in the Greek. It's a word that's often used of a general bringing his troops online to the battle in order to uh, organize them and order them to fight against the enemy. And so when we look at uh, 1 Peter 5, 6, where it says that God um, gives grace to the humble and that we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, but that God sets himself as a warrior or to war against the arrogant. And that is what we see here in these odd episodes in First Kings 22 on into Second Kings 1 is how God sets himself against the arrogant and destroys them and how he attains victory. So to understand these rather unusual circumstances, 
we have to set it against the backdrop of an army at war. Now, as we we wrapped up last time going through verse 40, that sets the stage for the last part of 1 Kings chapter 22. There's two elements to 1 Kings chapter 22. The first has to do with a summary of summary account of Jehoshaphat's reign in the southern kingdom of Judah. This is covered in verses 41 through 50. And then we have three verses that summarize Ahaziah's reign in Israel. Ahaziah is the son of Ahab. But the problem here is that in our English Bibles, there is a break to the next chapter. We have this chapter break and book break. We go from 1 Kings uh, 22:53 to 2 Kings 1. But in the original, 2 Kings 1 came immediately after the statement in 1 Kings 22:53, because the the only reason they broke them at that point was because you couldn't get the whole thing on one scroll. So it is to be uh, taught, and this is why I'm going through this as one book: First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Must all be understood to be one book in the original. They're not two different books. That was just a, a way in which you could uh, organize them and get them uh, onto a couple of different different scrolls. So we have to recognize that verse 53, the last verse in chapter 22, flows right into the beginning of 2 Kings chapter 1, and so we will we will treat it as such. I'm just going to say a couple of words about verses 41 through 50 because uh, Jehoshaphat will be covered more fully in, in, more, in greater detail when we get to 2 Kings chapter 3. This is just an orientation that is set here by the writer for the purpose of displaying the contrast between Jehoshaphat, the king who is doing what's right in the eyes of God, with Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, who does evil in the sight of God. So this this brief summation of Jehoshaphat here is simply to give us enough of an understanding of his reign uh, to contrast with the evil reign and the evil of Ahaziah. So in First uh, Kings 22:41 through 50, we just learn uh, about three things, couple, just a couple of things about Jehoshaphat. First of all, he's a good king. The, the bottom line is he did right in the sight of the Lord. That doesn't mean he did everything right. There were certain flaws, but he generally did right in the sight of the Lord. Kings doesn't tell us, though, that under his in his early years when he came to the throne, there was a tremendous revival, genuine revival, and reform in the land of, Israel, of Judah in the southern kingdom as the people turned back to God. And he uh, reorganized the kingdom, and he sent out uh, Levites throughout the kingdom to teach the word, and there was a tremendous response from the people. And he tore down the uh, idols in the high places, and he, he uh, cleaned up the land, and he was... Uh, uh, responsible for removing the high places and the male cult prostitutes, the homosexual cult prostitutes uh, were removed and he cleaned up the nation. Late in his ministry, the people rebuild some of these high places and he doesn't tear them down late in his ministry, which is what's referred to here in um, 
uh, verse 43 when it says, nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. That's, that happened at the end of his reign. But in the first part, we know from Second Chronicles 17 and following that there's this tremendous uh, restoration of the, of the Scriptures and belief in the Scriptures and the operation of the Scriptures during his early years. But his major failure comes later in life. We know this because of the notation that occurs in verse 51 regarding Ahaziah, that he becomes king in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat reigned 25 years. And so the battle of Ramoth-Gilead occurs some eight years before uh, before. Jehoshaphat died. And so that's in the latter part of his rule. That is when he uh, succumbed to various uh, temptations, one of which was to ally himself to Ahab in the northern kingdom. And he did it in a horrendous way. He entered into a treaty with Ahab whereby he married his son Jehoram to Ahab and Jezebel's daughter Athaliah. And the consequences of this are going to be horrendous. Athaliah will be used by Satan to kill all of the Davidic descendants except one. One of the greatest attacks on the Davidic covenant and on the promised seed that occurred in the Old Testament. Athaliah is uh, arguably worse than Jezebel because Jezebel didn't engage in such a horrific uh, horrific massacre. So uh, Jehoshaphat, by that deci- decision, brings the evil of Baalism unwittingly into the palace of Judah and into the southern uh, southern kingdom of Judah. So his positive thing is he restores the word of God in the in the southern kingdom to a to its important place. He spends the first half of his reign cleaning up the nation and reforming the nation. But his major failure comes towards the end when he enters into this alliance with Ahab and his descendants and marries his son to Athaliah. But nevertheless, his obedience is so great, his heart is for the Lord, that the divine uh, <clears throat> divine assessment is that he did right in the eyes of the Lord. Now that brings us to the last three verses, which introduces us to Ahaziah. Ahaziah is the son of Ahab and Jezebel. He is their eldest son, and he is the one who uh, takes the throne of the northern kingdom when Ahab dies after the battle of Ramoth. Gilead. So we read of him in verse 51, Ahaziah the son of Ahab became king over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat the king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and he walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother. Notice before it's only been one but it emphasizes his mother because of Jezebel. In the way of his father and his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who had made Israel sin. So it emphasizes the idolatry. Both systems are supported by him as he leads them into the false idolatry established by Jeroboam, as well as the even worse idolatry of the fertility prosperity cult of the Baalim and the Asherim. Verse 53 says, For he served Baal and worshipped him, and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. So because of his sin, uh, God must operate in terms of his justice and bring discipline and judgment upon the 
upon the house of Ahab. Now, this was already promised by God. He had announced a judgment on the house of Ahab that he would destroy his house uh, back in chapter uh, 19 and then again in chapter 20 after the event with Naboth's vineyard. He is told that God again will judge him, but there he showed humility. He humbled himself uh, under God, and God said that it would not take place in his time, but the kingdom would be taken from the house of Ahab in his son's time. So we expect that to happen in the time of Ahaziah, don't we? It takes us back to an event that had occurred earlier in First Kings chapter uh, 14, God had sent his prophet to warn Jeroboam I that because of his disobedience, because of the fact that he brought idolatry into the northern kingdom, that the, the throne of Israel, the northern kingdom, would be taken from him and his family would be wiped out and destroyed. And when his son, uh, Nadab, came to the throne, he reigned only two years, just as the son of uh, Ahab will reign only two years. And uh, Nadab reigned for two years before he was killed in a conspiratorial revolt by Baasha, and this ended the dynasty, and the entire family of Jeroboam was wiped out. So we see that similarity. So when we read this, that Ahaziah reigned for only two years, our expectation should be that when he is killed, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of God that the house of Ahab will be destroyed. And we're going to be surprised because God is not a tame lion. He's not going to do it like he did it the last time. Ahaziah is going to die at the end of two years, but then his brother will take the throne, and God is going to give the house of Ahab a little longer time for their evil to come to fulfillment. And it's not until God brings that judgment finally on Athaliah, the daughter, that he will then cleanse both the northern and southern kingdoms of this horrendous worship of Baal. So we have to recognize that God does things in his timing. He is not under our uh, control. God is righteous. He is absolute truth but he is not necessarily going to perform in the way that we expect. We can't predict how he will perform, and we can't uh, control him. So Ahaziah will walk in the path of Ahab and Jezebel. He serves and worships the Baalim and the Asherah, and this will bring down judgment upon himself and eventually upon his house. Now let me give you a quick summary of what happens in chapter 1. Chapter 1 has 18 verses. And it's interesting what happens here, but first I think we need to just get an overview of what takes place and then the significance of it because I can just see some of you going home reading through first second Kings chapter 1 and thinking, "Hmm, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, and I don't see it here. What's the doctrine? Where's the reproof and correction? This is bizarre. How, why does God do what he, what he does here? See, Israel is in a foreign affairs crisis, that is the northern kingdom, and it is because there is a rebellion against, uh, by Moab. Moab has been a vassal state under the house of 
the house of Omri. Omri was Ahab's father. Omri, Ahab, controlled Moab. Moab paid tribute to the northern kingdom. And we just have this little introductory note in verse 1 that Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Ahaziah is in a crisis. He's got a foreign affairs crisis to deal with. He has a hostile enemy on his flank that is uh, asserting its independence, and this is going to affect them militarily, economically, and politically. But that's not the focus of this chapter. But we know that that's there. That's what's going on in his life is he's got a major major crisis to deal with. And one night he is up walking, or day, we're not sure, I'm not sure which, but he is out walking uh, on the roof of the palace and he takes a misstep and he falls through the lattice work. That would basically, he falls through the window. They had uh, lattice work there that would uh, allow for ventilation. And so he takes this misstep and he falls through the lattice work into the, into the upper room and he injures himself severely. It will be a fatal injury. We don't know the type of injury or whether he just had an infection of some kind that was, of course, fatal because they didn't have antibiotics. And that's not really the point of the story. The point of the story is how he's going to solve his problem. So the question at hand is how do you solve your problems? You try to solve your problems like Ahaziah by going to the uh, typical problem solutions that are available uh, watching Oprah or Dr. Phil or going through some sort of psychotherapeutic uh, counseling. You seek your solution to your problems by drugs or alcohol or sex or social life or any of the other details in life. These are the typical problem-solving uh, devices that the world offers. And so Ahaziah has a major problem, and he wants to know the solution. So he sends his messengers to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, uh, to find out if he's going to recover or not. And so he is... Um, uh, he sends them down to see if he, they're going to recover or not. And as they leave to go down to find out the answer to this question, uh, they run into a messenger that is sent to them, uh, Elijah the prophet. And the angel of the Lord has appeared to Elijah the prophet and said, uh, it is because to give a message to Ahaziah, There we go. No. There. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now, the first part of this is a rhetorical question to bring out the real issue that is, is the point of this passage. Is there no God in Israel that you have to send to Baal of Ekron to get a solution to your problems? In other words, has God so departed Israel that you don't, you're not going to find your solution from the God of Israel? You've got to go off somewhere else and find some alternative uh, therapy in order to solve the problems in your life because you don't trust God to solve them. So you're going to go outside of Israel to a Philistine city in order to find a solution to your problem. 
You're not going to trust the sufficiency of God's grace, the sufficiency of God's power, the sufficiency of God's word. You're going to use some other human viewpoint technique in order to solve the problem. Now, the reason we know that this is the centerpiece of this passage is this statement is repeated three times in the chapter. Out of 18 verses, you have almost uh, you have five verses that repeat this. Just to make sure we get the point that God and God alone is the solution to our problems, not these other techniques that are popular in the world around us. So these messengers then go back to Ahaziah to inform him that they saw this strange uh, man on the road who gave them this message for him. And Ahaziah inquires the identity of the prophet. Who was this? And when the description is given that he is a this hairy man with a, a belt around his waist and uh, looks kind of like a wild man out of the wilderness, he realized it was Elijah, the nemesis of his father. And so he sends a contingent, a sort of reinforced platoon down to get Elijah. And Elijah is sitting up on this mountain, and as this uh, platoon approaches, the captain comes out to uh, order Elijah to come back to Samaria. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven that incinerates all the troops. Well, weren't those innocent people? Why are they... Why are they destroyed? Maybe God hates the military. That's probably some liberal interpretation. And so um, word gets back to Ahaziah, and so he doesn't learn because arrogance is tenacious and self-deception is uh, blinds us to reality, and so he sends another group of 50 uh, down to retrieve Elijah to bring him as if Ahaziah controls the prophet of God. Again and again, he's called the man of God. The emphasis here is to show us that Ahaziah is trying to control God. He, he is placing Elijah under his authority. So he sends his second group down there, and they get vaporized as well. And so then a third group is sent down, and this time the captain of the guard demonstrates humility in contrast to the arrogance of the previous two captains and the arrogance of Ahaziah, and he comes up and he bows down before uh, Elijah, and he politely asks Elijah to preserve his life and that of his men because he's shown humility. The angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, directs Elijah to go with him back to Ahaziah. And so Elijah goes back to the king, and he makes the same announcement. This is the third time this announcement will have been uh, mentioned, and he says, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? In other words, you, you don't think God is sufficient to solve your problems, so you have to go look elsewhere for the solutions to the problems of your life. Well, there's going to be a penalty for this, therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now, again, the question, how is this profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, in, for correction and instruction in righteousness? A couple of things we have to remind ourselves of as we approach passages like this, and we'll have others like this in, in 1 Kings. First of all, we have to remember that the writer's purpose in writing First and Second Kings 
and in describing what happens in the uh, life of the United Kingdom and then in the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom is to show that God is faithful to his promises back in Deuteronomy 28 to 30 and Leviticus 26, that if the nation is obedient, God will bless them, and if the nation is disobedient, God will curse them. The idea of cursing is the idea of judgment. God will bring judgment on the nation. And we see that the nation is united in prosperity at the beginning of First Kings, but when we get to the end of Second Kings, we will see that both the northern kingdom and southern kingdom have been disciplined and judged by God, and they are both out of the land under divine discipline, under the fifth fifth cycle of discipline. And so the pattern that we see throughout these books is the the historical record of how God is faithful to his word to bless those who walk with him and to judge those who are in rebellion against him. And so the lessons that we see in this these these two books relate either to God we learn something about him as we are today in terms of his incomprehensibility. They relate to man in terms of man's failures and man's sin or what happens when man humbles himself under God and is obedient. We see lessons related to divine discipline or divine blessing. And above all, we see lessons related to learning to trust God, to walk with him, and to obey his word. Now, these lessons for this episode come out and are exposed to us as we pay careful attention to the clues that the writer gives us. We have to be good readers. We also have to be good readers in Hebrew, which is hard for most of you, but that's why I'm here. We see, we have to remember the backdrop here that the conflict that's going on in the northern kingdom is between Baal and Yahweh. This is representative of the cosmic conflict, of the angelic conflict, because Baal is an idol, and again and again in scriptures, the idols are just manifestations of the various uh, demons. Baal is the god of prosperity. He's the god of thunder. He's the god of lightning, the god of fire, the god of rain. He is the god who can give life. He is the god who will bring fertility to the fields and fertility to the womb and fertility to the nation. He is the god of the ancient world's version of prosperity theology. Now, modern prosperity theology came out of the charismatic movement. It's also called the health and wealth gospel, the name it, claim it gospel, the word of faith movement, and it really puts God in a box. I had a student years ago at the College of Biblical Studies who, at the break of the first night of class, said, well, I don't agree with your view of God because I think God is like a Coke machine. If you put a quarter in, you know you're going to get a Coke. You know, if you do A, you know you're going to get X. If you do B, you're going to get Y. If you do C, you're going to get Z. See, that's that's one of the inherent problems within prosperity theology is that God is reduced to a formula and a mechanic. God is there to serve man rather than the other way around. But it's not just the prosperity gospel people that have this problem. We all fall into this same trap to lesser degrees. We think we control God. We have a handle on God. We can somehow predict what God is going to do. If I just go to Bible class, if I listen to enough doctrine, if I read my Bible, if I witness to people, God will prosper me. He'll heal me. He will uh, take care of me. He will solve my problem. See, Christians also fall into that trap of thinking that God's blessing is somehow related to their uh, what they do, and we forget that God is not a tame God. 
God is not going to follow your preconceived notions. We can know God. We can know him truly, but not exhaustively. We don't control him. He's the one in control. He's the general in charge, and he is going to do what is necessary because the only, he's the only one who's omniscient who has all of the all of the information. So God's not going to perform as we expect. Now, in this confrontation, this is not uh, Elijah's first rodeo. He's already shown that to the people that only trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can people have real fertility. He demonstrated that on, on Mount Carmel. On the other hand, Ahaziah epitomizes the problem of fallen man. He rejects the divine solution and seeks the human solution. He rejects the sufficiency of God and looks for happiness and health and prosperity from another source. And what we have to remember are two things. First of all, When we seek happiness and prosperity anywhere other than God, we will always lose. We will always end up miserable and unhappy. When we seek the solution to our problems anywhere else other than God, we may have a temporary alleviation of problems, but in the end, we will fail. It will never work out. Whether we're looking for aid, we may not go to Baal of Ekron. We may go to uh, secular psychology, drugs, alcohol, emotion, religion, apart from Christianity, some other drug. But it will always fail. So this conflict with Baal is brought out in the text in various uh, literary devices. We know that um, uh, Ahaziah sends to Baal Zebub, but when the text says in verse uh, verse six, who was when when Ahaziah asked the messengers, who was it that you met? He said, Well, this is a um, oh, this is verse eight. So he was a hairy man wearing a leather belt. And the word there is for, for man it's it's unusual. Usually man is just Ish, such as Adam was Ish and Eve was Isha. So it would be Ish and that would be it. But here he's called Ishbaal. And in Hebrew that's the letter Aleph with no vowel, it's the letter Aleph plus Sheen. So we would represent it just like an apostrophe plus an S H. But if you change the vowels in Ish for man to esh, you go from the word man to the word fire. And so there's this play on words, this pun that the Holy Spirit uses uh, to get our attention here and to draw our attention to uh, this issue that uh, they're looking for help from Baal Ekron and they're going to get an answer from Ish Baal who will send fire from heaven. He is the man of, of God who will send fire from God. And so that is um, the focus there. Now the other thing that we see here is this play on words with Baal. Baal's above is used only this time in the uh, only this one time in the Old Testament, and it means Lord of the Flies. It is a very derogatory way of speaking about and writing about this glorious God. You see, the Bible has no respect for other people's religions. It's not politically correct. The prophets deride and mock 
what other people believe because Christianity is true. And if you're going to believe anything else from Darwinism to Marxism to uh, Buddhism to Islam, then you're just a fool. And you are worthy to be mocked because you are such an idiot. And that's how the Bible approaches this. So the prophets would refer to Baal Zebul, which is his real name, Baal the Prince or the Exalted One, by just changing that one letter and call him Baal Zebub. He's the uh, Lord of the uh, the Lord of the Flies. So the Bible doesn't respect other religions. God is not a respecter of other religions. Human viewpoint in our culture says you have to respect other other religions. How you apply that is between you and the Lord. So we see that Elijah is this man of God. He is the Isha Elohim, and he is going to send the fire of God, the Ish Elohim. And so the pun emphasizes that the man of God is really the fire of God. Elijah is the one who brings fiery judgment upon the northern uh, upon the northern kingdom. Another word play that shows up is there at the beginning when, in verse 2, when Ahaziah sends out his messengers. The Hebrew word for messenger is malaak. The Hebrew word for angel is malaak. An angel is a messenger. And so we have the English word angel because that's just a transliteration of the Greek word angelos, which it means messenger, the same as the Hebrew malaak means messenger. And so as Ahaziah sends out his Malaach, the Malaach of Yahweh says to Elijah, you will be my Malaach. And so there's, you know, this is full of, this is amusing literature. The, the Holy Spirit is very comical in this, and he's just poking all kinds of fun at poor old Ahaziah and those who worship uh, the Baalim. And so it is... Uh, for this reason that God, that God is going to be so severe toward those troops that Ahaziah comes out. They are not innocent. They are guilty because they are supporting this t- tyrannical regime that is promoting the worship of Baal, which we, all of that is part of the, is under the death penalty in the Mosaic, uh, in the Mosaic law. And so God is going to send down this this fire that incinerates these troops because he is protecting his people, and in this case, his prophet, Elijah. Because those first two who came are operating on arrogance, and Elijah wasn't safe. But the last man shows by his humility and his respect for Elijah that Elijah would be safe. God never expects us to voluntarily put ourselves in risky situations where our life may be in danger other than if it's for the purpose of uh, protecting others or the purpose of protecting a nation. For example, in uh, some sort of abusive relationship, people often get the idea, sometimes women get the idea that, well, God says that I need to stay here with this husband, but if your life could be threatened or is threatened, then that is not the biblical concept of submission to stay there and to be abused. It is you should take yourself out of that situation. God does not expect you to put yourself in that kind of a life-threatening situation or circumstance. So he protects Elijah, and it is not until the last one comes along that Uh, has humility, and Elijah goes with him. 
There's one other interesting word play that goes on, and that is the contrast between up and down. Read through the chapter when you get home this afternoon or tonight, and you can highlight or circle all the words having to do with going up or going down. Azariah falls down through the lattice. Then the angel of Yahweh tells Elijah to get up and to go up to call uh, to address the messengers of Ahaziah. His message is that Ahaziah will never come down from the bed to which he has gone up. Elijah's oracle that's repeated three times repeats this message of going up and coming down. Instead of Elijah going down to Samaria, fire from God comes down from heaven. When the third captain comes along, he Elijah goes up with him uh, because of his humility. Uh, or the, the captain goes up to Elijah because of his humility, and Yahweh tells Elijah to go down. And the point of this is that the Bible depicts the sin and the consequences of sin as going down. We talk about the fall of Lucifer, the fall of Adam. When unbelieving man dies, he goes down to uh, Sheol. Uh, there is this contrast. You go up to God, down to punishment. Uh, Elijah is exalted, be, lifted up because of his humility. The humble are lifted up by God's grace. Yahweh is high and lifted up, but he does not exist only in heaven. For as the psalmist says, if I go down to Sheol, you are there also. See, the God of the Bible is depicted as not a God who is restricted to one location. He is omnipresent. He's not localized. He's not limited. He's not under your control or my control. We can't pin him down. He is going to do things that surprise us, things that take us by, by off guard, like sending fire from heaven down on these troops. But that is because God is not a tame God. He's not really a decent God. He doesn't stay under our control and stay in a box like we want him to. He doesn't stay up in heaven, but he comes down and he interferes. He tells us how we ought to run our personal finances and control our checkbook. He meddles with our marriages. He tells us what are good laws and what are bad laws. He meddles with politics, and he meddles with law. He tells man how he is supposed to live, and man is supposed to uh, humble himself because God has expressed his opinion, it's the only one that counts, on everything in life, and he's not going to stay comfortably in the box we create for him, but he calls us to be submissive to him in every area of life. Now, the name Beelzebub is used only here in the, New, in the Old Testament, but it's used one time in the New Testament, and that is in the Gospels. At the turning point in Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees came to him and accused him of healing people by Beelzebub. See, there is a direct allusion here to what happens as Ahaziah sought to be healed by Beelzebub because he was sick. So Jesus was accused of consorting with Beelzebub in order to heal people and to cast out demons. The Pharisees who challenged Jesus were, in effect, charging Jesus with the sin of Ahaziah and the sin of Ahab. But they were the ones who had distorted everything because of their arrogance and their self-deception. So in effect, as they were saying, they were saying to Jesus, is there no God in Israel that you should cast out demons in the name of Beelzebub? But Jesus was the incarnate God of the Old Testament. 
And he is the God who will eventually bring judgment upon Israel as announced by John the Baptist, that he would come and baptize by means of the Spirit and by means of fire. That is a direct allusion to the fire called down from heaven by Elijah. So standing before them was one who was greater than Elijah, the one who died on the cross for our sins, that the victory in the angelic conflict would be won because he was willing not to be arrogant, but to humble himself to the point of obedience, to the point of death, and dying for our sins on the cross. The contrast is, are you like Ahaziah and Ahab operating on arrogance, or are you like Elijah operating on humility and trusting God to provide the solutions for all your problems? Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for these pictures that we have in the Old Testament, these events that occurred that illustrate for us the reality of our choices the problems of our own self-deception and arrogance. And we see how self-deception destroyed Ahab, and it not only destroys us, but it destroys those around us, as we see with Ahaziah. His self-deception not only caused his own death, but those of the hundred, the soldiers who went out under his orders. And we see the horrors that result from human arrogance and self-deception. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right where you sit, you can trust Jesus as your Savior. You can understand that he died on the cross for your sins and believe that he is the only one who is qualified to save you and that he did this on the basis of his work on the cross. By trusting in him and him alone, you have eternal life, and that can never be taken from you. If you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God in salvation, then that is the starting point for your new spiritual life that continues on the basis not of arrogance but humility, trusting in God every step of the way. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.